Welcome back to the Elevate Podcast. We had the pleasure of sitting down with entrepreneur and marketer Caitlin Burgoyne. We talk about selling to the right audience, life as an entrepreneur, and how to build out a great brand story. Something to note before we start the episode today is we had some tech difficulties in the first three minutes or so, so please bear with Dalton and I's audio for the first little bit. Now that all of that is out of the way, let's get into it. It all starts now. Innovation is in our veins. Soon the whole world will know our names. Sharing our knowledge and freedom reign. We here for the people, you know us our way. Setting foundations is part of the dream. It doesn't matter if you're new to the game. Listen up now, cause we all gon' say. Ugh. Elevate, 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 higher, elevate, 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 higher. We gon' rise up, we all gon' shine. Work through adversity, stay on the grind. Elevate, elevate, this is our time. Elevate, elevate. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, everyone. So great to have you on one more time. Dalton and I are super excited to have all of you, and we're also very excited for one other thing. Tell me, Doc. We have Caitlin on with (laughs) us this week, and if you know any of the backstory, you can watch my Instagram or Twitter, you know how this came to be. I made a whole video about it. It was a whole video. Yeah, shout out Tyler Farmer for helping us out. Yeah, we love that one. Oh, Tyler's the best. I was just talking to him yesterday, actually. Oh, perfect. That's great. Yeah, he obviously had nothing but great things to say about you. And uh, we're very excited to have you on that you decided to say yes, as we know, (laughs) you are a very busy woman. Everyone's busy, right? But you can't be too busy to talk to people who give such an amazing ask. I would have said yes either way, but it might have not happened as quickly (laughs) without that video. So yeah, this is that was outstanding, guys. Oh, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, we're two guys, I guess, kind of give a big brief on who we are. Uh, you know, Dalton is becoming the next, you know, uh, real estate mogul Halifax. <laughs> Slowly. Nice, nice. Uh, he's doing a lot of great things. Uh, I work as a UX designer and I also started my own UX firm as well just this past uh, July. And so getting Congratulations. that Congratulations. Thank you. And so we're very excited to be able to talk to you and all the things you bring to the table. We know the all the accolades that you bring. And uh, before I mess anything up, going forward, what is the correct pronunciation of your last name the first question everyone always asked me on podcast so if we were in a french-speaking place it would be Burkwan. but instead we grew up in nova scotia and i grew up in the south shore and so it's burgoyne 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 all right sounds good wow. all right that's what we'll roll with then perfect perfect well thank you so much yet one more time so as we kind of we just talked about you you know being the south shore uh let's go let's go all the way back mm. What was your upbringing like, and how did you how did you get to be where you are today? And what do you think was some keys from even your childhood or growing up through high school, university um, that really helped you get to where you are? I love that question. It's not one that I've been asked a lot, and so I would say you know I grew up in the South Shore, um, Lunenburg specifically. Lunenburg, if anybody knows it, is like this storybook of a place, and you don't realize that when you grew up there as a kid, like you just think it's this average place like everywhere else. And Lunenburg happened to be close to another really cute town called Mahone Bay, and you know we'd come to Halifax, and Halifax is really beautiful. And so then I'd go other places in the world, and I was like, why are all these places so crappy? But it turns out that those places were just really amazing. So I guess growing up in Lindenburg, it's, it was, um, you know, a small community, everybody knows each other. And my grandfather, who was an, you know, tradacious entrepreneur, he owned the local bar. And so growing up with a single mom, my grandparents would pick me up after school, and I would go to the bar (laughs) until my mom would get off work. And so got to see that entrepreneurial life, got to get inspired by my grandfather. At the time, I didn't know that that's what was happening. But now that I can look back on it with kind of like hindsight, I can see that. And so like lots of people, I knew that come grade 12, it was time for me to go to university or to college or do something, you know, something with my life. And didn't really know what I wanted to do, but all I knew was I definitely wasn't going to do business because business was very boring and I was a very creative person and why would I ever want to do business? And so I went off to King's and did an English degree because I was a decent writer. I thought I might get into journalism, but you know, it wasn't really for me. And then I thought I was going to do law and I did pre-law down and I was like, oh, this is not good. Um, <laughs> so I ended up finishing up with an English degree which anybody who has one, like shout out like $40,000 and like you can do nothing really. 
<laughs> there's not a lot of job prospects. You can right. go off and like, you know, you can be a writer full time if you want to. You can learn to, you know, you can go back to school and become a teacher, but there's not a ton of really tangible skills that come from having an English degree. And so I spent a couple of years serving um, as, a, as in restaurants and I had this great uh, manager who owned uh, Morris East restaurant. She's since expanded and she's got a couple different locations. But I remember her saying to me, it was a really big moment for me. She said, you know, you're really good at, you know, dealing with people on the, in the restaurant. And I've read a little bit of your writing and stuff and it's good. She's like, you should do PR. And I was like, what is PR? <laughs> like I had never heard of this before. And she goes, you know, public relations. And I was like, noted. So I went home and I looked it up and read a little bit about it. And I was like, that does sound kind of interesting. And so ended up applying to the NSCC's advanced diploma program for PR, getting into PR, thinking I was going to kind of use that as a stepping stone to a master's, did the one-year program. It was awesome. My professor was fantastic, learned a ton and realized, holy crap, I love business. Like, I don't know who that person was who thought that business was boring because marketing and PR and advertising, that was the stuff that like lit me up. And you know, to make a long story longer. So I was really excited when I graduated. I was like, I'm going to like dream job, want to get into advertising, right? Want to work in an advertising agency. And I'm applying to all the agencies and like nobody's responding. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm not going to get a job. And then after about like, you know, three weeks of like desperately applying everywhere, I get a call back from one of the big agencies and they say, we're looking for temp people. Like, are you interested to come in and do like, you know, maybe it might only be like two or three weeks. I was like, hell yeah, let me, let me add this. And so I started in that position, had another amazing manager who was really influential influential for me. And that, you know, three weeks turned into three months. And I was quite satisfied that that was going to be, I was going to stay there and I was going to get to work in an agency, work on cool client opportunities. And out of the blue, somebody reached out to me who had discovered me on Twitter. And at that point, I might've tweeted like four times, like I was not active on Twitter at this point. And they said they were starting up a, a kind of what they called a creative collective. So they had previously owned an agency and sold it and said, I want to keep doing, I want to keep working with these great clients, but I don't want to have the overhead of having a whole team who relies on me for their salary. And so I want to create this creative collective where everybody comes in as individual freelancers and I could give you, you know, 15 hours of work guaranteed every, every week if you're into it. And I was like, Okay. And then they're like, and I'm going to pay you $25 an hour. And to me at this point, I was like, that is mad money. Are you crazy? <laughs> like, You're going to give me that much money. <laughs> it just seemed like an astronomical amount of money to me at the time. <laughs> and so I decided to take the jump. And that was how I kind of forayed into starting my own freelance business. And then grew that into an agency and then started another agency and a tech company. And so this is kind of what brings us to today. But yeah, that's, that's really the long story of my upbringing and how I got to where I am now. I think that's a fantastic story. That's pretty story. cool, yeah. You know, that's like one of our favorite questions to ask because everyone has such a unique background. and uh, Some different and walks up, of life. Exactly, right? and up, yeah. uh, you know, and the way they came up, and I think that's amazing. Yeah. And you were talking about how you, at that point you said you've only maybe tweeted four times. I think that leads well into my next question is you are someone who is – I'd say tweets a lot. Yeah, like active on Twitter. Yeah, very, sure. very yeah. active. Uh, you're all over it. And it's not even so much like, you know, you got people like me uh, who just, you know, tweets out random things here and there. Um, you know, I'll throw the one nugget of knowledge out maybe once a month Yeah, uh, that actually lands with people. Um, but you seem to be, you know, someone who consistently on numerous times a day releases content or tweets out things that are actually get people thinking, yeah. get people talking. Uh, and you do it a lot. So how, A, do you find the time to do it? B, uh, to make sure, what is your strategy when you are tweeting? And, uh, and how do you come up with such great things to say? So that, I appreciate the, the compliment. Like, it's not something that I, like, you know, I'm one of those people, I saw this tweet once that, you know, most people sign up for Twitter, don't really get it, just let their account go void for a long time. Then for some reason, kind of make their way back, like, and then we're like, oh, now I get this. And then they like, in what, what does it go? Like, they put dark mode on. <laughs> it's like a dark mode enabled. Yeah. Like, that was my exact journey. Like, I had an account for years, never really used it, felt as a marketer that I should be on Twitter. So I was on Twitter, but not active. And when I, um, 
ended up starting my most recent company, which is very much focused initially, it was very much focused working with high growth companies, primarily tech companies in the beginning. And I was like, well, we're, they're all on Twitter, right? So as a marketer, I'm like, I've got to go where the audience is and they're all on Twitter. So I'm going to go over, and I'm going to be active there. And so started tweeting a little bit and like anybody, it was into the void and nobody was really paying attention. And I kind of clipped off a tweet one morning or no, it was when I was going to bed, I was on my way to bed and I thought I've tweeted something. I think I said, um, you know, it sucks when you um, do a couple customer interviews and you've got this new product idea and you discover nobody really wants your product. But it sucks way more when you don't talk to any customers and you end up spending months or years building the wrong thing. You know, send tweet, go to bed, wake up in the morning. There are like, this thing's gone viral. There's like thousands of likes and retweets from like some of the top people in like, you know, the tech world. And I was like, what the heck was that? <laughs> and I was like, this Twitter thing's okay. Like, I'm kind of down with this. And, you know, there is no secret to virality. It's really like, there's lots of things that I post where I'm like, this one is good. And then like, nobody responds to it at all. And then something mm -hmm. else where you clip off something quick and it's just kind of like a, thing in the back of your head and people seem to really resonate with it. But from a strategy perspective, I'd say that I am intentional about making it a consistent thing. So I don't let more than, you know, two, three days go without saying something. I talk a lot about what I care about which is helping people understand their customers better, helping them to learn from their customers, encouraging them to talk to their customers because not nearly enough people are doing it. So I tweet a lot about that. Um, and then I just share kind of like little tidbits of wisdom that I'm collecting often through the day. Something, well, I'll see something and I'll go, huh. And then I'll think I could tweet about that and I'll type something out. I don't do a lot of pre-planning, but what I do is that if I'm feeling particularly clever, I will post a few things and I'll save them in my, in my drafts. And then when I have got nothing, which also happens lots, I'll be like, okay, do I have anything decent? That I've thought of? Yeah. So that's kind of it. And the big thing is, you know, really interacting with people. I think that a lot of people who have large followings, they don't actually participate in conversations. Right. And mm. so I am, I, as my pro, as my account grows and I get more followers, it becomes a bit more laborious, but like, I want to respond to every like person who says something, at least it, with a like to acknowledge that I saw it. And if they say something clever, I want to come back and like have that conversation. If they ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. So making the time to actually use it as a place to have conversations, I think is really important. That's totally fair. That's pretty, that's rare as well. I find like where I find Twitter can sometimes be very one-sided and in certain niches right like it's kind of uh someone tweets and they don't really really care about the audience so i appreciate that it's like uh you're willing to you know even as your account grows find the time to interact with as many people as you can well, the thing too, as a marketer, there's some marketers who give advice that you should like hire like a virtual assistant and yeah. get them to do it all for you. And like, to me, that is so, I don't know, there's just something that feels so icky about that. And so I think that the, you know, at the end of the day, people want to know that they're getting a response. And if you get to be, you know, I, I know some people who are really, really busy and have huge followings, like they're not responding to every single person, but they're also being really frank about like, you know, I've got two kids and two jobs. <laughs> like I might not get yeah. back to you right away. And I'd much rather that than somebody who's paying somebody to go in and robotically like and comment on things. Cause I feel like that just undermines the whole dialogue aspect of yeah. it. So again, going back onto that, yeah, continue on the idea of, you know, having an online presence. Are you someone like, I mean, I'm sure no one is, uh, you know, everyone gets this from time to time, but do you feel like you receive a good chunk of negativity online? I don't actually, like I have been, I think pretty fortunate because I know a lot of people who will, you know, they'll retweet comments that people have said to them and things that they said, they'll like retweet, like they'll take a picture of DMs that people are sending that are just ugly and cruel and strange. And I have been fairly lucky. I'm probably at that tipping point where my audience isn't big enough yet to really cause a lot of uh, the trolls to come out, but like, not really. Like, you know, occasionally you'll get a snide remark or you'll get somebody who, you know, subtweets you and says something snarky. And, but for the most part, I would say it's, I get probably mostly positive um, 
positive feedback and you know messages people saying this really helped me or i shared this with my team and like you know i, I convinced them that i they should finally let us talk to customers which for me is like always like a dance in my seat moment because again not enough people do it um i would say i've been pretty fortunate and most of the feedback is positive fingers crossed that that um stays but if it starts to get really negative, I guess I'll have to get a thick skin and suck it up. <laughs> but at this point, it's been, for the most part, fairly positive and very cordial. You know, if somebody disagrees with something I say, typically it's a, we approach it in a respectful way and we can agree to disagree. Well, I'll say this. That's fantastic news. I'm actually so happy to hear that, uh, that you aren't getting a bunch of nonsense. Um, it seems to be exactly what, what Twitter is. Yeah, it's, Seriously, that's why it took a break off Twitter for so yep. long. Yep. And you know what? Like, I think the interesting thing about Twitter is they're so good at creating like these microcosms of communities and like oh. marketing Twitter is just so nice. Like they're yeah. just such nice people. That's, uh, that's really great to hear. Real uh, estate Twitter's mean. <laughs> mean. Are they? Yeah, they are. They're also cutthroat. Yeah, it's uh in, in in the design Twitter world, it's a little bit, it's it's half and half. You get a lot of people who are very the supportive. The design Twitter world seems to be very very snarky. There seems to be oh, a yes. lot of you're it's not clicky. doing it the right way or. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like even so. We just had Jared Spool on here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you big UX designer, UX designer, yes. has over a hundred thousand. He's followers. abrasive too. Not everyone likes the way that he communicates. Exactly. Yeah. And he, he was just telling us stories. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And we talked about that with him. He's like, yeah, I know. It's just, you know, it's just how I see things in life, you know, and some people don't like that. And so be it. Um, but he, I love uh, those he, people, though, because I love when people are in the same way in real life as their like mm -hmm. online persona. Exactly. Yeah. You, you do have to admire that in people. 100%. Um, but, you know, I've seen like, and he's been in the game a long time. And mm -hmm. he's got people who are my age calling him an idiot. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> on what leg are you standing on? Yeah. It's like, I would never, I would never dare. No. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's interesting kind of the, the different types of the different sects of Twitter that are out there. Yeah. It's funny you say that because like, I remember like, you know, you asked me with a story about my kind of upbringing and how I got into stuff reminded me of this. Like where I remember when I was getting the job at the agency, the first agency I worked at, I had just come out of school and social media was somewhat new. Like we're talking like 10 years ago. Like it was like something mm -hmm. that was like important in marketing, but it wasn't just assumed that everybody was using Facebook and like, you know, other things didn't exist yet. Like Instagram didn't exist yet. Like, and so I remember I was such a little cocky shit. Like I was going <laughs> into like agency life being like, well, you know, like at least I'm young and I understand social media. And like, really I understood like, how to like do things on social media. I didn't understand the fundamental human aspect of what makes for good marketing piece at all. And I totally mis like misunderstood how important that piece of was to it all. But I feel like when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. And so there's like this massive chasm. You have so much confidence. And the more that you learn about the w world you're working in, the less confidence you have. Because <laughs> you're like, oh shit, there's so much that I don't know. It's a, it's, it's very true. And it's funny because I'm guessing you and I are probably in the same ballpark relatively in terms of age. Um, cause yeah, that was myself as well. I just got into the industry, uh, just over five years ago myself. Um, you know, uh, I had my first Facebook account, uh, at the age of 13 years old and uh, age 13, 14, whatever it was. And, you know, I, same mentality. I know how this all works. And then I came my own job. And yes, I was the UX designer, but I was also in charge of the marketing of our social media platforms. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I got this. Easy peasy. And then, as you said, I got the deeper I got into it, I was like, oh, there's a whole other side of this I never even knew existed. Nuts. <laughs> it's yeah. not just knowing how to do it. It's knowing how to create something anybody wants to pay attention to, right? Like yeah, we're in the attention true. economy and we all have lots of people vying for our attention. The ones that get it are the ones that really get what makes people tick, right? And so moving kind of more towards what you do for a living and uh, how your company kind of operates, I'll throw this one at you because I saw this, you know, you, put, you, you posted this a few different times. Uh, I believe it's also on your website too. But in your experience, how often is it do people focus on the wrong customer? Mm -hmm. All the time. 
all the time. And they're not always the wrong customers, but imagine like, you know, one of the sayings I say is like, you can't boil the ocean, right? Like they're going after such a huge swath of customers that I'm sure some of the right ones are in there, but they're just, they're just too generic. And so I remember working with a couple of companies, one in particular, that I sat down with them and I asked them, you know, tell me about who your customers are. Cause as a marketer, that's what you need to know. And they said, you know, we work with internet companies with anywhere between 10 and 500 employees. And in their mind, that was a very clear customer segment. They're like, you know, our customer avatar is, and I like sat back and I go, that is everyone. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, holy crap. Like, and then, you know, after working with them for a little bit of time, we really, really refined it. And for them, that was a catalyst that helped them to take off and, and get to the next stage. But it's so, so common that either they're focusing on the wrong audience, or they might have the audience they might have a good sense of who the audience is, but they have no idea what the audience cares about. They're speaking from their perspective as the company all of the time, just droning on and on about, you know, this is what we do. And like, you know, here's why we're the best and yada, 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 and not actually spending any time trying to understand why somebody would want to buy from them. And so even if they get the audience right, they still are missing the deeper piece of the story to actually get the outcomes that they often want. Bang on. Yeah. Absolutely. The thing I love about it is the more that we talk and the more I've kind of seen your content, the more I realize you and I are very similar in how we see things. Uh, I do find there's this interesting crossover between UX and kind of what you're doing is more so customer experience and customer acquisition. Uh, and I love that. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't well, we're geeky more. about people, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I really think that the, I think that the, not just marketing and UX, you know, it, it applies to sales. It applies to, you know, if you're in fundraising, like, at the end of the day, the, I think that the, the advantage that you can get is never about the technical skills, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you mm -hmm. know, those, that stuff is important and there's definitely a value in honing your craft, but it's very much in like the foundation to all of that is the piece that so many people try to leapfrog or don't actually pay any attention to. And that's really the, un, the human part of it. And if you can really figure that part out, your chances of being successful with any of the other stuff is just so much higher. Dealing with your different your customers and helping them understand what their customer base is. So have you ever had the situation arise where you get hired to help out a company and they just fight you on everything? <laughs> um, luckily, no. What I, I should give the caveat that like, so what we do at Customer Camp, we started out working, you know, primarily we doing a little bit of consulting work, but mostly doing training. These days, I'd say we're probably about 98% training, 2% consulting work. Um, mm. It's just that there's a lot of demand for the training and not a lot of capacity to deliver on the consulting side. So we're looking at making some changes and hiring some new people that are going to help us to kind of switch that a little bit. But when I do start working with clients, typically the reason they've come to me is because it's, they're looking to understand their audience. Like that is the service that we deliver on the consulting side. Like I don't write copy. I don't execute on like marketing campaigns. Like there are great people that can help you with that. Could our team do a lot of that? Sure. But that's not what we're specialists in. Like we're really, really good on the, okay, let's figure out who we should be talking to. First of all, let's go out and find those people and really dig into their brains <laughs> to understand them and to pull those insights so that you can use those in many areas of your business. Right. And so that's what we do when we do consulting projects. It's typically more around, let's go off and really understand what's motivating your customers. I like to say, it's like, what makes them tick, click and buy. And with those insights, you can do lots of things. You can improve your copywriting on your sales page. You can figure out if you should launch into this new market or this new channel or, you know, how to approach, you know, an advertising campaign. You can give notes to the sales team. Like there's a lot you can do with it, but you need to have that core understanding of who the customer is first, and then you can deploy it in a ton of different ways. That's fantastic. Absolutely. So, you know, you've been in it a good chunk of time now, you know, and as people naturally, at least in our culture, we love a good underdog story. <laughs> so for yourself, what was your biggest setback in life and how did you overcome? Well, I went bankrupt. So that was a pretty big one. <laughs> <Wow>. We <laughs> love a good bankrupting story. Yeah. So um, 
I, you know, I've been very open about my startup failure. I think that not mm. enough founders talk about the failure. You see these incredible stories of the Mark, you know, Zuckerbergs and the Jeff Bezos and the huge unicorn companies. And then there's all of these other companies, which it works out to be like 95.5% of them <laughs> that, or 99.5% of them that don't have that story at all. And those stories often don't get told. And so I've never been afraid to tell mine. And at the end of the day, it got me to where I am today. And I'm in a happy place. But when I was building my tech company, so my tech company was Vendiv. It was a business network for women entrepreneurs. Um, in the beginning, I was still running my agency at the same time. And so I was using the agency to hire the people to build the tech company and funneling money from one to the other. And I kept going and trying to raise money from investors. And they would say, no, 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 you have another company. Like, we're not going to invest money in you until you're all in. And I was like, but that other company is the way that I'm able to do this business. <laughs> like, I can't do it without the other company. And they're like, no, 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 you have to, you have to be all in. And so I ended up decide, making the decision. And in retrospect, I would not recommend this to particularly tech startup founders, but I made the decision to close down my agency, to move the team members who were, had the appropriate skills into the startup, and then let a couple of people go, and to take on personally guaranteed debt to kind of get us through the few months while we were going off and raising venture capital. And so in doing that, I took on, you know, a 50K loan and then I just started living on credit cards and I had never, ever had credit card debt in my life. I had always been one of those people that like nerdily paid it like even before it was due and like there was never a balance. And so over the course of the three years of building that company, you know, had, ac had accumulated about $150,000 in personal debt. And so when I made the decision to close the company down, because it was, you know, we just weren't able to hit the milestones, like that's another long story. We were good on the marketing side, not so good on the product side. Probably wouldn't be great to have somebody like you on our team, Josh, who could have helped us to apply the insights from marketing to, to the product. But um, we, you know, I had to decide, well, what am I going to be when I grow up? And also, can I afford to pay down this debt? And so I didn't actually file for bankruptcy. I filed what's called a consumer proposal. And the reason that I knew about this consumer proposal was because a friend of mine, who's a really phenomenal entrepreneur, who also tells his story proudly, um, who's the founder of Proposify, who's, that's a really well-known company here in Nova Scotia, he had had to do it as well. But I felt more confident, you know, that I could handle it. So ended up filing for a consumer proposal, which you have to pay back a particular uh, amount of your overall money owed, but it's much, much less than you would have to do um, if you were to pay it back all back. And it's not as bad for your credit. So it's something that you can start rebuilding your credit sooner. And so filed that and proudly within two years had paid it all off. And that was a really good feeling. I'm starting to rebuild my credit now, but yeah, that was a big underdog story. Like I, you know, I came out of that with no money in the bank and a hell of a lot of debt. And I wasn't able to take a break. A lot of founders, when they kind of close things down, they have to take a breather, right? It's like, I can't, like, I can't, um, I can't afford to like, just, you know, like, jump into something else right now my brain needs that recoup well i just couldn't do that and funny enough like after i had closed down the company i got offered a number of awesome jobs like i got offered like some pretty crazy jobs at some amazing companies like you know shopify wanted to hire me to be a marketing manager and like all of these really crazy jobs and i was so burned out at the time and so my anxiety at the time was so high like i couldn't even imagine working for somebody because <laughs> i was like what if i failed them <laughs> so for me like even taking a job wasn't an option so i was like i just need to go back to consulting and at least then i can like the only person i could disappoint is me <laughs> and so i ended up doing that and it turned out to be the best thing because the wonderful thing about, you know, about my story is I got to meet this amazing community of people in the East Coast startup ecosystem. And they really, you know, like, even though I fell hard, they were there to pick me up, you know, the, you know, my lead investors brought me on as a consultant to work with some of their portfolio companies. So like, that was like a little bit of money while I was like trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And so it was, uh, and then getting to work with those companies and getting to see that they were really having the opposite problems that we had had. Like we, we struggled on the product side. I didn't start off with a technical co-founder. And so we really 
you know, we really struggled on the product side, but we were good on the marketing side, but I would sit down with these incredible teams and they had that, they just didn't know from the product side, right? Like they were great on the product side, but not so good on the marketing side. And so it really kind of, that, that led to where, what I'm doing today, which was a really good thing. I think that's awesome. And it's an amazing story that you got going on there. And so the one thing I kind of want to, you know, jump into a little bit is, you know, like these stories you said, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're great underdogs, uh, underdog stories and uh, they're cool things that happen. Uh, but for the people who just, who might be going through something like this at this point in time, or is, what was it like, you know, on those, you know, on a cold night, if it would like say, what was it like, when did this kind of happen? Was it over the course of a year or uh, was it just kind of the over course of a summer or, I don't know. Well, it was a four, four years that we were working on the company. And I, what I would say is it's funny. I see my husband going through it now cause he's doing a new company and it's be doing a startup is just fucking crazy because like I used to say, it's like, you have to build a skyscraper and nobody will give you any money, but they will give you any money until you build the skyscraper. So it's like, how the hell am I supposed to do this thing? And it's just really, really hard. And I'm watching him go through it now. Like he's launched something new and it's going amazing. But at the same time, I can see him going through like the, what in startup world they call the trough of sorrow, where you're like, you get these incredible highs and then you get these incredible lows and things aren't going as planned. And it's really, really hard. And so I'd say over the course of those four years, the things that sustain you are the highs, right? You're getting wins, you're raising money, you're winning awards. Forbes is calling you the next LinkedIn for women. Like, you know, and you're an inspirational entrepreneur and you're like thinking like, those are the things that like are keeping you like from just giving up essentially. Um, but then there's enormous amount of doubt and fear and guilt around, you know, you've brought people into this journey with you. You've brought your team, you've brought your investors and you really, really want to perform for them. And, you know, you, you know, in my case, my husband, he had been supportive of this and I've now taken on all this debt and this debt is going to affect us personally. And like, and so it's really, you know, when you're going through it, there's no way to do it other than just to get through it. But the most important thing I'd say for me that made it manageable was just having the community of other people that were also going through it and being able to shut the door and, you know, not have the press or like any of the like potential investors in earshot and be able to say to each other, yeah, so are you doing it? Like, are you like not sleeping? And they're like, yeah. Like, are you like having like cold sweats? Yeah. Like, is everything going as good as it looks and for the outside? Oh, fuck no. Like, and so you'd hear, like, you'd sit down with founders that from the outside are the ones that everyone's aspiring to be like. And then you get to talk to them behind closed doors and realize that they have no idea what's going on either. They're still just hoping like hell it's going to work out. And luckily for some of them, it did. And it's, you know, they've really hit their stride. But I'd say that surviving it was, you know, having those other people that were going through it was essential. And if you're going through something right now and you're struggling, like, don't be afraid to reach out to other people. Because I think that nobody knows what it's like to be an entrepreneur other than other entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I, Sorry, you go for I was it. just gonna say that investor piece I think is very like I can resonate with that as well where it's like increasingly hard to raise money uh, for residential real estate right now because bankers just have no faith in it at the moment just where we're in a pandemic they have no faith like they just don't see the need to give money over that uh, and, y and you said the the trough of sorrows uh, and you mentioned you know reaching out but is there any uh, do you have any other tips or, or ways that you managed um, your your own anxieties or your own pressures during the, the you know that process of starting a company um, that you might want to share. For sure, um, for me, exercise is exercise is medicine. Like I am by no means fit, but I work out every day because if I don't sweat, my anxiety just goes yay high. <laughs> so like for me, it's like getting consistent exercise has been huge. I've tried a lot of the things that I wish that I know work and I know if I were to apply them, they would work for me, you know, like doing meditation, like, you know, cutting alcohol out. Lots of people make those decisions and it works well for them. For me, um, I, for, it was, it really came down to having that core group of people that I could consult with, um, that I could talk to and that I could, you know, we could sit down and bitch together and make each other feel better. Um, making sure that I was, 
you know, getting enough exercise so that I could keep my brain calm and putting lots of processes in place just allowed me to kind of like perform at my top level. You know, like I do, like I have very particular workflows and things like that. But really when you're trying to do the work of three people in one day, you have to figure out how to, how to build your day to make that viable. So I'd say like, you know, just being ruthless about prioritizing my time not wasting it. Like I do the Pomodoro method, which some of your listeners might've heard of, but basically I work in like 15 minute increments and you do focus work for 15 minutes and then you take a break and then you do focus work for 15 minutes. And it's proven to help you get a lot more done because in that 15 minutes, you're just not allowed to do any of the other things, right? You can't check media, like social media or go on Twitter or check your email or go off to this other task that is a little easier and you'd rather do that one. And so that works well for me. Um, ruthlessly prioritizing yeah, having like you know like one top priority and like three categories of my life that matter and like knowing what that priority is and trying to stick to it that's been huge because the other thing as an entrepreneur is that we are so good at coming up with great ideas that we have no time to execute <laughs> like, yeah. and so be learning that learning those mistakes from having done it too many times right so here's it so if you don't, if you can't think of something, that's totally fine. But now I'm just kind of curious. Is like, what's the craziest idea you had that you wish you could execute, but you don't didn't have the time for? So there's one that I'm like wanting to execute right now, and like again, like I have to keep like slapping myself and telling myself not to do it. But like, I think personally, like I think like there's a lot of energy around high growth companies, uh, particularly in Atlantic Canada. It seems to be like, that's where a lot of the enthusiasm and excitement around entrepreneurship is like, you know, these tech companies, these like, you know, high growth, um, you know, research back companies, like that's where the energy and enthusiasm is. But for me, what gets me really, really excited are these other highly scalable models that we don't see enough of coming out of Atlantic Canada that I think we have the talent pool to be able to do so well. So I look at businesses like Mr. Lube, right? Mr. Lube was like this new business model applied to like auto body stuff. Like it's like, no, we're not going to do 90% of what other places do, but we're going to do this 10% insanely efficiently. And that's going to help us to scale across, you know, like all of North America. Or companies like Drybar, which started out in, I think, in California. And they were the first place to be like, we're not going to do haircuts. We're not going to do color. All we're going to do is style your hair so you look good when you're going out tonight. They do what's called blowouts. And like now they've got locations all across the U.S. And so I look at these companies, these kind of like productized service companies. And then the other companies that I'm really excited about are direct-to-consumer companies. So I look at these two types of companies that I think are highly scalable, require the right efficiencies. And with the right guidance could create huge opportunity in our region, but get absolutely no love and attention. You know, like the person that's selling jam at the farmer's market is not being courted by investors or being told to come join an incubator to learn how to do like a direct to consumer massive jam company, right? That could be worth like tens of millions of dollars. And like, I think that when I was doing my agency before I got into my startup, like I didn't know about this world of startups. I didn't know about this idea of you can try shit and you don't have to have it all figured out yet. And you can make mistakes and you can build like a small thing and test it. Like that way of working that now to me is so commonplace because of the world I'm in is completely alien to most businesses. And I would like, so this is my, my big thing. Like what I would really like to see happen in Halifax in particular, is I would love to create something like a Volta Labs for these physical product companies or for these people who are wanting to create this productized service company. And I want to give them the same opportunity for learning and access to resources that we're giving to people who are writing code and pushing pixels. Because I think that there's a lot of talent here that is getting under leveraged. And so I don't want to lead it, but if somebody's going to lead it, I will definitely help. That would be That's so cool. cool. Yeah, 100%. Especially, like, I mean, there's a place, uh, you know, the Valley has a soft spot. For, I have a soft spot for mm -hmm. it. And I see exactly what you just said. There's a lot of those types of opportunities out there for sure. You have a lot of mom and pa shops who are, you know, have some great products that they're trying to sell. Um, yep. that they would actually benefit a lot from something like that. Yep. Absolutely. There's a book, um, Super Maker, that just came out, and the authors of it, they created, I believe it was a um, 
I think it was a deodorant. I've got a double, I think it was a deodorant. I might be wrong about that, but like basically they started it from, you know, in their kitchen and they showed a picture of their first apartment where they were creating this, this deodorant, but they, you know, very much embraced e-commerce, direct consumer, building a really close connection with your customers. Like what I love about direct consumer and productized companies, productized service companies is like, you get to own the whole customer experience, right? And you get to do that in other industries too. Like you get to do that in tech, but like the cool thing about it in these other companies is that like, there's so like the tangibleness of like an experience or a physical thing. Like, it's not like you can just change it like real quick like you can over time and should but like with tech it's like okay that's not working let's pivot and do this with these companies it's like okay like we've got a product and if this product isn't hot dog shit i bet you we can position this and find the right people that are gonna love this product right if we can talk about it in the right way and we can communicate the value of the product and so i think for those types of companies there's so much opportunity just being left on the table that they just don't know how to do it. So the Supermaker book, the the founders of it, they went off and they sold, I think they're, I, again, I think it's deodorant, but I think they got acquired by like Unilever for like 40 million or something. And now they've started a fund and they're just like investing in other like direct consumer product companies and they're educating them. They're like, we can do this, right? Like just mm -hmm. because you're making like, you know, your bath salts in your kitchen right now doesn't mean that you couldn't have this huge company that impacts the world and creates a lot of value for customers. And so that's kind of the future I want to see. And as I look at the economic climate that we're in, I think that we have a position in Atlantic Canada to do really well there. And we are not well positioned to compete in some of the other markets that we really want to compete in, like quite frankly. So I'd love to see us actually encouraging more of that as opposed to primarily obsessing around tech companies where we barely have the tech talent to sustain the ones that are here. Right. Yeah, there is a lot of talk where it's like Atlanta Canada is a tech bubble, tech hotspot. It's like, but what about all the other industries that existed in Halifax for the last 25 years that no one looks at anymore? It's yeah, it's it's just it's, it's highly just, profitable, but scalable businesses, right? And that's the thing. That just, they yeah. need to be told that they don't have to build the whole thing; that they can test it, they can experiment, that they can do this whole lean iteration that startups just know and love. But if you run again like that jam company, nobody's ever told you about it. It could just be like such an eye-opening moment. So that's the thing that's like on my radar right now. Um, that I'm chatting with some folks about. But at the end of the day, again, like I can't be the one to do the lift, but if it's going to happen, I would love to participate in some capacity. Absolutely. And I think, you know, these some words I heard from a wise individual once upon a time was, uh, it was actually when I was, uh, it was one of my mentors and uh, I was debating if I was going to start my current company right now. And he, and I was like, ah, we're in the middle of a pandemic, recession, is this a good idea? And he was like, honestly, the, uh, the best companies come out of recessions, and, you know, and he listed a bunch of companies that started in recessions, Uber being one of them, Airbnb yep. being another, a lot of big things. They recognize the weakness of that time and, you know, take they, advantage. they take advantage of the situation. And I think there's something here right now in a, a tough situation where people can be, get creative. They can do some awesome things through all this. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. I think COVID had the opportunity to be really good for some people's businesses. Absolutely. Personally, yeah, like, I mean, I mean, uh, even I saw growth during this time. So, I mean, I feel like it's, if you're, if you're willing to hustle, you can make a, you know, a really nice story of a pretty crappy picture. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I mean, I should mention, I should plug my husband's company because we're doing that right now. So like he, you know, his quickly, his background is he was a chef and he ran a number of restaurants here in Halifax and he had a bad breakup with a business partner and decided he wanted to get out of the culinary world. And so at, you know, mid, you know, in his mid thirties, he decided he's going to get into the safety, which how that's connected to culinary, I don't know, but it totally made sense for him. And so he wanted to get into safety and he wanted to work in the oil and gas sector because lots of high paying jobs in safety in the oil and gas sector. Several years waiting, waiting, waiting to try to get into that sector. You need a lot of experience. He didn't have it yet. And so just as like we started touring restaurants, he was like, you know what? I want to get back into food. I want to get back into food. I was like, okay, like let's open up our mind to the fact that maybe you're going to get back into food. And so we started going and touring restaurants to see if we might take over a lease and like what we would do. And just as that happens, the universe hands him on a silver platter, the most epic, like offshore job ever. And so he takes that and he does that for a little over a year. And 
as he's finishing up that contract hunting for his next one, whoa, global recession <laughs> or like global pandemic, like you can't fly anywhere. There's no way to go to, to work in that sector. And so it was both frustrating after having worked for several years, like, you know, seven years trying to get into that world, but also hugely liberating because it was like, well, now you have no choice but to do your own thing again. And what do you want to do? And so we came up with the idea to create what has become Charboys. And at Charboys, we deliver like ready to grill barbecue to your door. So it's kind of like HelloFresh. But what makes us really different is like HelloFresh is delivering like your meals for the week. Like, you know, here's Tuesday's dinner. So you don't have to think about it. We're really focused on creating food experiences. So it's like, you're, this is like one night of food that you're going to have an epic time with. You're probably going to invite a few friends over or you're going to celebrate an anniversary. You're going to do something special and you mentioned about the pandemic right like what made the timing so great for us is like jason can't open a restaurant all the restaurants are closed <laughs> like there's there's no way to do the restaurant so how can you scratch that itch of wanting to do food in a different way well at the time everybody's getting their food delivered right and people are afraid to go to the grocery store and one of the small comforts that we had during the pandemic was food. So it's like, this is this kind of like perfect, like storm of all these things happening to make this company make sense. And so, you know, four months into it, it's grown, it's evolved. We're doing some amazing things now, but like that concept would have never come up if not for the pandemic. Yeah. Like it just wouldn't have been an idea we would have come up with. For sure. And like, and kudos, like, you know, I love those types of stories. Make something good out of you something know, a little bad. Exactly. You know? Some lemonade out of those lemons, you know? That's it. Um, but it's so easy to sit back and go, this sucks. Meh. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. But how cool is it to just win? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, those are some of my favorite stories. In some ways, they even get me emotional at times because they're so cool yeah. and so awesome. I think the challenge people do is that they try, they don't think you can start like, again, like going to this whole like idea of like, you know, start and fail quickly. Like, so the way that we started that was like, it wasn't like we decided like this is going to be the thing that you're going to do. And we're going to invest all this time and money into it. We're like, okay, why don't we do one event? Right. Why don't we partner with a couple other businesses? And we coined it as the um, Halifax's big barbecue bash. And why don't we create, sell a hundred boxes. And if we can sell a hundred boxes and get people excited about it, then maybe we're on to something and we should spend a little bit more time here. And so we didn't create a website. I ran the whole thing through a Facebook event, right? There is no brand. Like it's, if we can sell a hundred boxes and there seems to be interest, then we might invest a little more time here. And we sold out within like two days and we had like no audience, right? Like this is just like, there's like people were really resonating with it. And then even after that, it's like, you know, our next thing was like, we still don't have a website. We still don't like, so now we've kind of evolved. Now we've got a website. We spent a little bit working with a great team on our branding, but we didn't start there because we didn't know if it was going to work. So it's like, what's the minimal way that we can test this and create a great experience with the customers without putting all of our eggs in this basket if it doesn't work. So I think for a lot of people, when it comes to taking advantage of opportunities, they always think, I think there's this fear, like if I don't do it in a particular way, I'm not going to be deemed as like professional or people are going to not take me seriously. And there's like this ego that gets caught up in it. Just put that shit out there and see if people want it. And put the first talk to lots of people because we did that too. Like we did like 15 interviews before we actually moved forward with the idea, but like, talk to people and then figure out what does minimum really look like, right? Like how can I test this thing in a very minimal way and be comfortable with that and don't worry about what the rest of the world thinks. Cause guess what? They're not thinking that much about you anyway. <laughs> They're thinking about their own lives. That's a good point. It's so it, true. It's not their, not their credit and it's not their time. Exactly. So it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Well, as we kind of finish this off, I got one last question for you or second last mm -hmm. question. Um, but could you give us five keys off the top of your head if you can do it? Nor as you can, but five keys to creating a great brand story. Uh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think about the best way to answer it. So I think at the end of the day, the number one thing that people need to realize is your brand is not 
the hero in the story. I think a lot of people make the mistake of positioning the brand as like they make the whole story about them, right? You're not the hero in the story. Your customer is the hero in the story. And the way that you communicate, like they have to see themselves at the center of the value. They have to under see, think that you understand their pains, that you understand how to get them to that next level, to that desired outcome that they're seeking. And so I think it really starts with, you know, the key is understanding who you want to make the hero of the story, understanding what they're going through in their life and what their journey looks like that would lead them to wanting to buy from a company like yours. And then being able to consistently tell that story, right? And so I think that a lot of people, I, I say like, even your about page isn't really about you because if you read some of the best ones, you can see the customer in the story, right? The customer feels, it feels like they're part of that story. So I think the key really, I mean, if I really can drill it down to that one thing, which is like, know why you exist. And that's because of your service to your customers. And then make sure that that's reflected in the behavior and your met story and invite them into it. Because if you invite them into it, you'll not just build a brand, but you'll build a community. And that I think is the ultimate differentiator, right? Like you can have, there's lots of known brands that exist that don't have zealots around them. But yet then you look at companies like Apple, like if you, they did this study where they would interview um, religious, like, uh, what are they called? Evangelist Christians <laughs> about God. And then they would interview people who like Apple products <laughs> about Apple and the same areas of their brain are lighting up with like, just like extreme pleasure when they talk about God and when they talk about Apple. So I'd say really, you know, no, creating a great brand is inviting that customer into the story, making them part of the story. Apple did that better than anyone. Like when they came out with that 1984 video and they had the woman running and crashing through the screen and they were like, you know, we're about digital renegades. Apple wasn't the digital renegade. We were, we got to be the digital renegade that bought into that story and we all wanted it. Right. And so I think that that's it. It's like, know who the real star of the story is and then know how to weave that into your story so that the brand feels like a story that they want to be the star of. I think it's a great take. Oh my gosh. And a great way to kind of put a nice bow on this, on this chat today. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that, Kaylin. It really meant a lot that you came on. Uh, one last bonus question for you, just for just out of you know, just for kicks. How how close are you to becoming a millionaire? <laughs> not close enough. <laughs> not close <laughs> enough. But I'm 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 close. I'm a heck of a lot closer than I was a year ago. Let me tell you that. And Way at to the be. at the rate that growth is happening, like ask me again next year. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I love that. I'll put it in my calendar. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Hey, no oh, problem. Thanks for ours. joining us. It really means a lot. Yeah. Well, we just got off with Caitlin, and we're very grateful that she took the time out for us. Great conversation. You know, it was fantastic. I think, yeah. yeah she had some great energy for a Friday afternoon. And digital. Yeah. Because I don't think everyone's got the chops to keep the energy the same. No, definitely not. I mean, and I know it was, she was telling us she's had back-to-back meetings all day. Well, she's already. She was already fried by the yeah. time she got to us. And yeah. the fact, she took an hour. She kept it lively. Yeah. Love it. Well, thank you all so much for joining us one last time and one more time. One last and one more. Really hope you enjoy your evenings, whether it be you listening via running. Or uh, who knows, maybe uh, while you're at the office. Or while you're driving in. Maybe on maybe. the way to the office. Yes, or while you're yelling at that person who cut you off in traffic. That's me. Oh, that is you. That's me. <laughs> well, however <laughs> you're listening to this, we hope you have a good one. Peace. We're out.